Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Daily, there are around 100,000 people on the active waiting list for organs, but only approximately 14,000 deceased organ donors and 6,000 living donors. The importance of transplants. Tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. Hello, I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, your Prairie Doc host this evening. Tonight's episode is part of our 21st season, providing health information based on science, built on trust. We continue to provide trusted health information this evening as we discuss transplants in our last show of our 21st season. Joining us to address this topic are Drs. Faison Saeed from Avera Medical Group Nephrology, Sioux Falls, and Dr. Ashwani Singhal from Avera Medical Group Liver Disease, Sioux Falls, and the USD Sanford School of Medicine. Welcome and thanks both of you for joining us remotely today through Zoom. So tell us a little about yourself. Uh, Dr. Um, Singhal, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first? Yeah, my name is Ashwani Singhal. Uh, I'm a professor of medicine at the University of South Dakota, uh, Stanford School of Medicine, uh, and a transplant hepatologist at the Avera McKinnon Hospital and Transplant Institute, um, uh, dealing with uh, pre and post transplant care of liver patients. Um, and uh, my training in transplant hepatology uh, before I uh, started working independently as a faculty is from Mayo Clinic Rochester. Um, uh, and then uh, uh, been practicing transplant hepatology for the last uh, 15 years or so. All right. Has all that been here in uh, Sioux Falls, or were you practicing somewhere previous to that? No, uh, I joined uh, Avera in January 2019, uh, and I came from uh, Birmingham, Alabama at UAB, uh, where uh, uh, I uh, started in 2011-2012. Uh, and then 2019, I came January uh, to Sioux Falls. Uh, and the reason I came here is because it is a very, uh, you know, uh, freshly started center in liver transplant in 2017. So there's a lot of scope in contributing to the development of the program. And um, also, it's a very collegial uh, program between surgeons and physicians. Uh, it's, it's been it's been a great uh, great place to. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I know um, when this is playing, hopefully there will not be any snow or bad roads, but uh, definitely tonight there is. So we're being safe to make sure our guests are safe and uh, doing things remotely. So, all right. Well, Dr. Saeed, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, I'm Faisan Saeed. I'm one of the transplant nephrologists. I've been uh, with Avera uh, for the last three, almost coming to three years. Uh, I'm originally from Pakistan. I did uh, my medical school, one of the prestigious institutes in the hall, one of the major cities in Pakistan. Did my residency in one of the major uh, like hospitals in Connecticut. 
in New Haven. Uh, then I did my general nephrology fellowship in Nebraska, University of Nebraska Medical Center. Uh, from there on, I went to California, San Francisco, and UCSF for my kidney transplant fellowship. And after that, I've been here in Sioux Falls with Avera. Uh, and it's been a great experience. I'm currently the director for the kidney transplant, medical director for the kidney transplant bankers program. Um, so it's been a, quite a journey. All right, excellent. Well, let's get started with some questions. Uh, since this is recorded, we uh, don't have call-in questions from our viewers, unfortunately, but uh, our Prairie Doc team has a lot of questions for me to ask, so we will get started here. So why don't we start is, what organs can be transplanted to begin with? Is, is any organ able to be transplanted? I mean, obviously we know liver and kidney because that's what you two both are able to do, but what or other organs are able to be transplanted? Yeah, I think you can certainly like, uh, with the advancement in medical technology, I think you can certainly like try to do uh, organ transplantation and like other visceral organs have been like, been recently more into practice, but kidney has been the oldest and it's the most common one. Um, but obviously like the heart and the lung transplantation are taking the toll and I think they are also becoming more and more popular along with this. So to answer to your question, yes, you can certainly like, um, transplant any organ. Okay, so pretty much any organ. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Singal, when we're talking about liver transplants, are we talking about transplanting like an entire liver or just part of a liver? I mean, how much liver do you need to have uh, enough function in the, uh, the uh, donor or from the donor to the yeah. host? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you don't need a, uh, too much uh, liver to, uh, you know, for the body to function. Uh, so there are two ways to transplant. One is taking from a diseased donor, uh, and then uh, one is taking from a living donor uh, transplantation. When you take from a living donor, uh, I mean, uh, no wonder that the donor itself has to also sustain life. So you just take one part of the, uh, there are two lobes in the liver, right and the left. So you just take one lobe of the liver, and transplant into the recipient and leave the other row, and you will be surprised that within two weeks, I think, uh, if you scan the recipient as well as the donor, you will see that, the, uh, that that's a full liver uh, within about two weeks from one lobe, it has regenerated into a full uh, blown liver like in a normal person. Uh, so the liver has a huge uh, regenerative uh, capacity from the pluripotent stem cells, which uh, are in the uh, you know cholangiocyte area and the hepatocyte area, uh, and then they can proliferate, regenerate to form uh, you know one lobe to a full uh, liver. Uh, so you're right; it doesn't you don't need a, a whole lot. But in a disease donor, typically it is the whole liver which is transplanted, uh, unless uh, you want to give a split liver transplant and that you can do it to children, for example. So one child gets the right lobe, one child gets the left lobe from the same donor, depending that both the kids who are getting these transplants as split transplants are of the same blood group type uh, as, the, as the donor. Uh, and in that case, uh, in pediatric world, you can do a split transplant and from one donor, two recipients' lives can be saved. Uh, having said that, sometimes you do multi-transplants like uh, my colleague, uh, Dr. Saeed, said that kidney transplant and heart lungs can be done 
Uh, at the same time, they can be combined with the liver transplant. So multi-organ transplants can be done in a liver transplant setting um, quite frequently, not very frequently, but sometimes infrequently. You may have to transplant a small bowel, for example, which is another uh, organ which can be transplanted uh, from the donor. So lots of different uh, people that can be helped with different transplants. And so with liver and kidney, those are kind of the unique ones where you can donate while you're still alive and, and see the outcome of your gift to another person. I think that's quite amazing. So um, Dr. Sayed, do you want to talk a little bit about how does someone become an organ donor? How, and, and who are these people? Who are these people that choose to give a part of their body literally away to another person? Yeah, I think uh, so. anybody uh, who's healthy, 18 years or older, uh, can be a donor. Uh, we certainly have uh, criteria, uh, very strict criteria and a very selective criteria uh, for our donors. Uh, most of the time, it's basically a direct donation when your loved ones wants to donate to the people who are in need of their kidney. So they certainly step up. We do their evaluation as if like they're entirely separate from the recipient um, and make sure that they are not themselves uh, are not going to be a candidate for a kidney transplant down the road. But you can obviously like try to eliminate the risk factors as so much, but they are always very healthy donors who are who have become candidate for kidney donation. Uh, apart from the relatives or like your loved ones who want to donate, there's also like anonymous donors that we call who want to just like their, we call them non-directed donors. Uh, who wants to just help out because they understand that we are in dire need of uh, organs and we certainly have a great burden of CKD or end-stage kidney disease. And uh, that's been a very refreshing uh, outcome and that has helped a lot of patients in our, on our list to get a kidney donation done. Um, but I think anybody who's healthy enough, who's not diabetic, who's not hypertensive, or does not have any other like underlying medical conditions, um, they can certainly become donors. Okay, so basically if you're healthy and uh, you're likely not going to have any kidney problems in the future yourself, you can donate. Okay, wonderful. Absolutely, and I think definitely encourage to put a D on your driving license, mm -hmm. yes. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Segal, are there any uh, caveats for people that are doing um, donation of parts of the liver? Is there any restrictions of like these people can't donate or shouldn't donate? Um, when we talk about living donor uh, transplant for the liver, um, uh, typically there's an age limit. So generally don't take somebody below 18 and somebody mid-50s, so that's the typical age range when you would take a liver from a living donor. And obviously they go through a detailed evaluation that they don't have any major infections and they don't have major, um, uh, you know, comorbidities and uh, they, uh, you know, uh, evaluate their liver volume. Uh, I think that's an important thing that the, the CAT scan uh, or the imaging prior to, uh, you know, accepting a donor, living donor, uh, evaluates that whether this donor safely, uh, you know, can give a part of the liver which can go into the recipient, 
uh, and which would sustain the life of the recipient, but at the same time, the leftover liver will sustain the life of the donor too. Uh, so that volume uh, uh, you know, assessment based on imaging is very, very important uh, before you accept a donor. And obviously, the blood type has to be uh, matched. Unlike kidney, you don't have to match the HLA because um, kidney is a small organ and liver is a big organ. So a lot of antibodies can be absorbed on the liver surface, so you don't need an HLA matching for the liver uh, transplant. Having said that, I want to uh, take this opportunity to mention that uh, because only about 5 to 7% of transplants, unlike kidney, uh, liver transplants in the U.S. are through living donor, majority 90 to 95% transplants. Overall, there are centers who are doing a lot of living donor transplants, but overall, 90 to 95% are disease donors. And I think, as you said in the beginning, that there's a huge gap between demand and supply. Uh, so obviously, uh, through this uh, show of yours, uh, we want to maybe make people aware that make pledge and try to um, you know donate uh, when you go from this world and uh, make uh, you know somebody's life worth living uh, through your organs. Uh, so that is one way. And two, at the same time, we uh, try to develop techniques so that marginal uh, donors um, can be used. For example, uh, typically a disease donor is used after a brain death, uh, roadside accident, stroke, uh, you know, trauma, things like that. Um, but sometimes the marginal donors like uh, death after say heart disease or circulatory death when the brain is still working um, but there is circulatory death uh, then uh, that is a kind of a marginal donor that's typically not used but there are techniques to preserve that kind of organ and uh, do a successful transplant with the same outcomes as brain death donor um, uh, transplantation and then these new infections like hepatitis c and hepatitis b with the effective drugs which were available now there's more and more uh, momentum to use uh, organs from hep C or hep B positive donors into uh, recipients who don't have these infections. And you have to make sure that uh, the recipient uh, is well aware of this and they consent to accepting these kind of organs. All right, so it sounds like a lot of people are eligible at this point, and the more living donors, the better, because those are really good, uh, rather than waiting for someone to have a tragedy or pass away to be able to donate their organs. So living is wonderful. Excellent. Well, organ donation can be an unnerving situation to process. However, understanding the process and hearing success stories may ease anxieties related to the life-saving treatment. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer has more on UNOS. UNOS, or the United Network of Organ Sharing, runs the organ transplant system for the United States. And Dr. David Claussen, the chief medical officer, says organ transplant is the most sought after treatment for organ failure. It provides the best quality of life, a longer life, and really is a tremendous benefit to many patients across the country. There were over 40,000 transplants done last year. When someone is matched, Dr. Clausen says UNOS provides much education for both donor and recipient. The system is complicated, and for somebody who's not working in it every day, it can be difficult to understand. And so we work hard, you know, really, I think, to provide 
um, education so that as transplant patients, you know, progress along this journey that they that they have as much information as possible. Dr. Clausen says people who want to donate are screened and examined closely before donating. And for one donor, she wanted to donate because it felt right. It was just kind of always something in the back of my head is the right thing to do. Amanda McArthur is a wildland firefighter and EMT, and she didn't think much of what she did until she received a thank you letter from the recipient. The biggest impact I had when I donated was actually on his son, who is just like a little kid, and now he can actually be present in his kid's life. So at the time, I didn't really have much of a reason other than it's a good thing to do. And with the impact she felt, MacArthur and other donors, recipients, and even surgeons are participating in climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in support of kidney donation. We really want to show that it's possible to live a full life and it's not this huge thing after you donate a kidney. You're changing someone else's life, but you're not really changing your own life that much. Um, you're still going to be yourself and it's a incredibly important and charitable thing to do. Well, that's an amazing story. Talking about donating a kidney and then climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. That's so I, I think that just kind of goes to show, you know, does the donation really impact your life and your body after you've had that and sounds like for her no it hasn't slowed her down one bit uh, dr sayed what have you seen for the typical um recovery process for kidney transplants because when i saw my first one as a a college student back in the early 2000s they were it was a big scar and they were you know had to take out a rib to get to the kidney it was not a tiny procedure but that has changed significantly can you tell us a bit of it more about that in the recovery process for a donor? Yeah, um, yeah, I think definitely the medication and the medicine has evolved a lot over the years. Uh, we no longer do any open surgeries. It's mostly a laparoscopic surgery, so the recovery time is fairly, very quick. Um, let's just a little back up. I think, like I said earlier, the donors are mostly healthy to begin with, and those are the people we like follow very strict criteria to actually put them on a donor list. To begin with, uh, yes, uh, we have to eliminate like certain medical conditions, like the hypertension. That patient, um, you wouldn't know that somebody has donated a kidney. Honestly, you would have they would just leave, go back to their routine life, uh, like within a week or so. Uh, we keep them in the hospital for like a couple of days, uh, and after that. It seems to do really well. They can start their regular activity, or like if they are like big, like uh, into like sports or something, they can start a little bit like generously and then go go up slowly on it. But most of our donors uh, like go back to their like work within a week, and by four to six weeks, they have no limitations to do any of sort of activity. Um, at the same time, we definitely keep close tabs on our donors. Uh, our donor coordinators keep on checking on them. We make sure that they have their labs done serially. Uh, we keep on ch checking that even by like a couple of years to make sure. And then we also notify the regular doctor, primary care doctors, to actually go ahead and like follow them, like uh, keep them under the radar.
so yeah, that's a very easy process and like the recovery time is really very quick now. Wonderful. What about the recovery time for the recipient? So the person who needed the transplant, um, how does that change their life? Yeah, uh, oh, it's definitely a life-changing event for them. Uh, we certainly have to go back to all the worst education of what we tell them on dialysis, and they just like feel very liberated uh, with the types of foods they can they can take in and what kind of uh, they were like restricted to a lot of activities before the transplantation, and now they can like freely do anything what they want. And same goes for the recipients. Um, I think the recipient surgery is a little bit more extensive. Um, they're, they keep, we keep them in the hospital for like three days. That's the median time. Now, and then we follow them closely for at least four to six weeks, even though we follow them for life because those are, we are very possessive and very caring about our patients. We certainly want to like keep a tab on them very closely uh, and keep doing blood work. But uh, there, I think, go back to their routine life a little bit, like within a month to six weeks. That's also like the same time. Um, they can go back to their work as early as like two or three weeks as well. Uh, obviously, they have to have certain precautions because their immunity is now pretty much gone after the organ transplantation. So they have to take some precautions in order to avoid infections and all those um, and other like comorbidities that can happen. Um, so yeah, so I think their recovery is like pretty fast as well. Excellent. Well, Dr. Skull, do you want to tell us a little bit on the uh, liver side for both the uh, living donors and then the recipients? You said, you said the liver is amazing, can regenerate, so the donor doesn't have much to worry about as far as their long-term liver um, functioning because that part's going to regenerate. Um, but what about the donor? How do they? How quickly do they bounce back? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, uh, typically, if you select the right donor, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, their liver regenerates and um, uh, their uh, liver function returns to pretty quickly normal and within about two to three days in an uncomplicated surgery, which typically it is in experienced hands uh, from the donor lobectomy. Uh, uh, or taking the lobe out of the donor, uh, living donor. Uh, typically, they go home within three days or four days. And then uh, long term, there have been some reports of, you know, uh, uh, some uh, anxiety and uh, uh, psychiatric issues, uh, but fairly uh, in a small percentage of cases. And as I think my colleague, Dr. Saeed, pointed out, that these donor coordinators have to make sure that they are in touch with these people and make sure that uh, they are uh, rejuvenated and uh, they are uh, supported and uh, they're not left alone and uh, make sure that any time when they feel that there is a need for more support, uh, that is provided to them. For the recipient, uh, again, uh, I think depends on the complexity of surgery and the sickness before the surgery in terms of um, their uh, frailty or in terms of their deconditioning, uh, it may take uh, you know varying amount of time in terms of recovery after uh, transplantation. Uh, and the long-term survival uh, is pretty good uh, in, 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 in people who have uh, a certain uh, risk of dying uh, prior to transplant. Uh, but then 
uh, as was pointed out, it's a complete life change procedure. Um, and uh, within a few months, you will not even recognize uh, your own patient. Um, I remember one of my patients when I was in Birmingham, Alabama, um, he left, uh, I was busy in the clinic, he left a photograph at the, uh, at the, uh, at the reception, and the receptionist came later and gave me the photograph. And in that photograph, a gentleman in his mid-50s is playing basketball, and I couldn't recognize who that person is. And in my next clinic, he came and told me, did you get my photograph? I said, yeah, I got it. But who's that person? He said, that's me. <laughs> so, you know, I was seeing him for the first time after the transplant. Uh, and this is, I think, within six months or seven months after he got a transplant. So it's that like changing. You cannot even recognize your own patient because they gain weight. They, they become completely, completely different in a good way, uh, person. Wonderful. So it sounds like they get a completely new lease on life, new activities, and things open up to them that they wouldn't be able to do previously, and now they're able to live their lives and, and truly sounds like a life-changing surgery for them. So excellent. Well, checking that organ donor box on your driver's license application may give you a momentary pause, but it can be a life-saving decision. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Shower spoke to LifeSource about organ donation. LifeSource is responsible for organized tissue donation across the Upper Midwest. And Susan Mal Larson, their chief strategy officer, says 57% of the Upper Midwest residents are registered as tissue donors. That's amazing. But what's even more amazing that is in South Dakota alone, it's about 61%. So really tremendous. Um, community of generosity and giving. Larson says anyone can donate organs, and she says no one is too old to donate. The oldest organ donor was 95 years old, and so it's really a generous gift that we all have the potential to give. Even deceased people may donate to help others. And somebody upon their death can really save the lives of up to 75 people through the gifts of organ eye and tissue donation. Larson says over 100,000 people need a transplant, including 3,000 people in the upper Midwest alone. So these are friends, neighbors, relatives, loved ones who are really suffering from end-stage organ failure, and the only thing that will help them is a transplant. While many patients need a transplant, Larson says the wait list can be longer since patients need to find exact matches for their bodies. They can wait sometimes months, sometimes years. So an organ is matched with the person who is the sickest on the waiting list, but on the waiting list the longest. And of course, geography plays a role as well. LifeSource's mission is to provide hope and healing through organ donation. And Larson says the impact affects both receiver and donor. It really is a life-saving gift that impacts the recipient, their family members, and our community. Well, I think that uh, just showed how important organ donation is and how needed it is. And I am just humbled and happy to hear how uh, South Dakotans are so willing to share and, and be willing to be organ donors. So I think that's wonderful. Um, 
Dr. Saeed, do you want to talk a little bit about the waiting list? How long is someone waiting for a, a transplant typically with your kidney patients that you're seeing? Yeah, I think we uh, certainly are in dire need of organs uh, at this point. Like currently, I think there are like 720,000 people who have end-stage kidney disease. And last year or like the year before, I think we did like 21,000 kidney transplant. So you can do the math that we certainly need a lot of people uh, to come help and come and donate to our people who are actually in need. Um, so I think the waiting time, that's why the waiting time on average uh, at each center is around four years at medium. That's the median time that you have to be on the list before you can get a kidney transplant. Uh, and like as mentioned in this video, I think geography and allocation system certainly plays a role in it, uh, but I think that's the earliest, I think the earliest you can do is would be like three or four years, but not not earlier than that, considering that you have certainly like more uh, patients who are on the list. Um, that's why I think the living donation or direct donation is preferred, and we always tell our patients that if uh, they can, uh, they don't have any relatives or the loved ones who wants to donate. Uh, they can go into their workplace, uh, start with uh, like church groups. Uh, those have been like really, really helpful. And go on, use social media as your platform. Um, that's what we recommend. And I think uh, you can certainly like get, we have been pleasantly surprised how many people have turned up for just anonymous donation. Um, so that's very encouraging. Excellent. Well, wonderful. Um, Dr. Singal, is it any different for liver transplants? Or are people, I mean, there's not really a bridge to, like, with dialysis to transplant with the liver like there is with the kidney. So does that affect wait times, or? Yeah, I mean, that's an important question. Um, so the liver can be transplanted in two different situations. So the first point, I think, uh, in the previous uh, video, uh, an important point was made, which I think we should highlight that uh, a transplant should be done when you think that uh, the patient uh, condition is such that he's not going to survive on medical therapy alone and transplant is the only life-saving option. And typically in a chronic disease like cirrhosis or end-stage liver disease uh, from anything like alcohol or fatty liver or hepatitis or any other autoimmune condition, uh, when it gets to a stage, typically we use what is called a merit score uh, for uh, thinking when the risk of dying without a transplant is higher than uh, with a transplant. So recognizing that transplant is a major procedure, especially the liver transplant. Uh, so one year mortality from liver transplant is about five to 6%. So you want to pick candidates who are likely to have a higher mortality than five to six percent over a year uh, so that you are helping the patient rather than hurting. So that's first thing I want to do. Then typically we use a merit score about 17 or 18. That's the range when we start thinking about transplant uh, will probably help these patients. And then once the patient is, um, you know, accepted for listing uh, for transplantation, <clears throat> then the waiting time, depending on how sick the patient is, uh, and typically the sickness is gauged by the MAP score uh, on, uh, in comparison to the other patients, and whoever is the sickest uh, gets the organ first. Uh, 
Um, so uh, not only it's a major procedure, uh, but also you are replacing one disease by another. I think liver transplant itself, uh, you're giving a disease to the patient because a lifetime commitment, uh, not only coming to the doctors uh, for their follow-up appointments, but also taking these immunosuppression medications uh, throughout their life, at least for at least a long period of life, um, if not throughout the life, uh, I can say. It. So, uh, so it has to be very, very uh, calculated decision, uh, but certainly it is a life save. And the other indication and the other uh, where the wait time is shorter in a, in a condition which is more life-threatening, um, in, a, in a short period of time, like acute liver failure or fulminant hepatic failure or fulminant liver failure, um, where uh, you can't wait for a median time of uh, for cirrhosis patient, which is averaging from three to 12 months, depending on which center you are talking. Some centers you may have to wait for a year, some centers three to six months. But a fulminant hepatic failure, acute liver failure, is a condition where you have to transplant um, you know, somebody within 48 hours or 72 hours. And that's how they are listed. So they are listed at a very high level. Uh, it's called status 1A, uh, which is like an uh, highest level of listing. So any organ becoming available in that area or in that hospital, if it goes to, goes to the status 1A patient, uh, and then goes to the other uh, you know, patient with cirrhosis, and that goes by the next. Okay, excellent. So, Dr. Said, we talk about uh, when someone's getting a donation from a, a deceased donor, there, once that uh, organ is harvested, there is a clock that starts ticking. How long does that uh, recipient, that potential recipient, have to get to the hospital and get all their stuff, you know, in order so they can get that uh, life-saving organ when it's available? And how, do, how does that process hit? You know, they're waiting for that phone to ring. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. And I think uh, we certainly tackle that on a daily basis when we call our patients for a kidney offer. Um, as excited as they are most of the time, but certain uh, there are certain situations in which they just can't uh, leave or they're just like uh, have to be there, like uh, can't leave the hospital as early as we want them. But uh, to answer to your question, uh, uh, in medical terms, we call it the cold ischemia time. That's actually when we actually procure the organ and we put it on bucket of ice, and until that actually goes into the recipient. So that cold ischemia time at median is like around anywhere between eight to twelve hours, which is considered pretty safe. But we have certainly transplanted organs which have a polycemia time of like around 20 hours as well, depending on where the kidney is coming from. And uh, the longer the kidney stays on the ice, uh, the more chances of that uh, it's going to have a delayed graft function. That's a medical term in which we call, in layman's term, we call it a sleepy kidney, in which you sometimes need the support of, uh, in severe cases, you need the support of dialysis while the organ is recovering. Uh, most of the time, the organs, at least 90% or above, the organs do recover, uh, despite the colithemia time, and the patients are off dialysis within a day or a couple of sessions, and they have a healthy kidney function kidney to work with. 
Um, but I think for the patients, we always tell them, uh, the first thing is like we have to ask like how they're doing. Sometimes we, they are under the weather, they're not feeling very well. You certainly don't want to give them a kidney chance on a bad time. So it depends on like how the patient is, and that's the first step. And then I think we uh, ask them to like get to the hospital the earlier the better before, because I think we certainly have to do certain labs before we actually give them a transplant. Uh, but most of our patients are ready on the list. They have, when we call them active or like this one, like Dr. Singel was saying, that means that they can get an organ anytime they want, anytime, whenever it's available. So uh, most of the time, that's a very quick process. And majority of our patients are excited or ecstatic when they hear the news that we're going to get a kidney transplant. And they make um, every effort to reach the hospital the sooner, the better. Perfect. All right. Well, when an individual receives a life-changing organ transplant, many people think about the surgery and not what happens after. Prairie Doc reporter Sam Schauer discussed post-transplant care with Dr. Raymond of Monument Health. Dr. Lewis Raymond is a doctor for Monument Health, and he helps with post-renal or kidney transplant care. He says recovery can be quick, but he monitors for signs of rejection. The biggest thing is getting the patients used to the immunosuppressive agents, the agents to prevent rejection, and adjusting the doses to whatever goal they're set for. Dr. Raymond says rejection can happen for several reasons, but the number one reason is they stop taking the immunosuppressive medication. They say, you know, I'm feeling well. I said, why do I need these pills? And they stop taking the medications, and then we start seeing rejection in. However, he does say the chance of rejection is low if patients take their medication. The five-year survival of a newly transplanted organ is greater than 95% right now on current immunosuppression. A problem Dr. Raymond sees is a patient not understanding how to take their current medication after a transplant. A lot of the patients who get transplanted have underlying diabetes, have underlying hypertension. That doesn't go away. And so you want to make sure diabetes is well controlled, the blood pressure is well controlled. He also says that he pushes patients to be better about their health and adjust any habits or life decisions that lead them to need a transplant. Getting back into an exercise program, making make sure their functional status is improving, as well as what education on diet. You know, can you know we want to prevent anything from reoccurring in that transplant kidney, which got them there in the first place. And Dr. Raymond wants patients to remember one thing after a transplant. The transplant is a treatment, it's not a cure. So medical care has to continue. All right, well, Dr. Sagal, can you tell us a little bit what are immunosuppressive medications and why are they important? Why do patients need to keep taking them after they've had a transplant? Yeah, I think uh, before I answer that question, um, I want to uh, go back a little bit to your uh, previous question. Uh, and I think uh, related to what uh, Dr. Syed mentioned, uh, sometimes patients who have liver disease, and pretty commonly in about 30-40% patients have associated kidney disease, or we call it hepatorenal syndrome, or some other uh, reasons for kidney issues when uh, frequently in about 5% of all transplants, um, they have a both liver and kidney uh, to be given. And uh, many a times these patients are bridged, as you were mentioning in your previous 
question or uh, bridge towards transplantation with the use of dialysis. Uh, so I think uh, I wanted to uh, reiterate that and uh, make that comment. Now coming to your, uh, um, uh, and, and, and when these patients get both liver and kidney, their waiting time on kidney transplant is not uh, dictated by kidneys, dictated by the liver. So um, and they don't have to wait for four years to get a kidney. Uh, whatever time it takes for them to get the liver, at the same time they, they get the kidney transplant. So, but they have to qualify for that. There are certain criteria. We don't want to talk about those uh, for the sake of time. Uh, but coming to your question about uh, immunosuppression, and I think as Dr. Raymond mentioned, um, uh, you are curing a disease, but then uh, liver transplant itself uh, is a new organ. It's a, it's a, it's a you have to do something to keep that organ in the body so it's a foreign body coming from a different person. Uh, and then you have to use the anti-rejection medications because your own immune system is trying to go reject this uh, you know, new uh, organ. Uh, and these immunosuppressive medications are uh, preventing that rejection as the name implies immunosuppression. So you're trying to suppress the cell immunity of the individual so that it doesn't attack uh, the graft or the organ and reject it. Uh, and there are different uh, kinds of medications. Typically, these medications are started from the uh, time they are transplanted. So right in the OR, uh, they get a pulse dose of steroid and then within 24 hours, uh, they are started on one of the um, you know calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus, typically tacrolimus more than cyclosporin. And then within about two or three months, the steroids are taken off. And this is, I'm talking about liver transplant. And Dr. Said's immunosuppression is a little bit different in kidney. Uh, they use a little more stronger immunosuppression. Uh, by two or three months, the steroids are tapered off. And uh, typically, they're maintained either on tacrolimus alone or a combination of tacrolimus and another uh, medication. Could be 6 mercaptopurin or more importantly, mycophenolate or uh, cell cell. Uh, so these are the medications. So having said that, I think one important piece, now the technology has advanced so much, the medications have advanced so much. Um, we have come a long way in the last, I would say three decades or so, from early 90s to mid 20s, that the we are losing patients not from rejection, um, uh, because we have very uh, effective medications to prevent rejection, and that was a major cause maybe in the late 80s or early 90s of losing the patient uh, is from rejection. And now we really, very occasionally, we lose patients from rejection because we have very effective medications. Now the patients are also living longer, but they are getting more chronic problems like, you know, uh, obesity, diabetes, uh, fatty liver, for example, uh, and then uh, some of the other issues like malignancy, uh, because when you suppress the immunity, uh, you are putting patients at risk of developing uh, cancers in the long run. And in the short term, they can be at risk of getting some infections like uh, some of the opportunistic viral infections like CMV, and EBV, and herpes viruses. And obviously, the bacterial infections and fungal infections uh, can also happen. So I think there's a huge transformation. They're making people live longer, uh, but then they have to be lifestyle has to change so that they don't get obese, they don't get diabetes, they don't get high blood pressure like 
uh, Dr. Raymond. All right, excellent. Well, we just have about five minutes left here. So Dr. Saeed, um, when someone has a non-living donor, does the family um, ever get to meet the recipient of that? I know I've read, you know, there's always heartwarming stories you read in social media about someone, you know, they got their dad's heart and then they got to walk the daughter down the aisle. Is that, is that typical or is that uh, not when a deceased donor donates, uh, does the surviving family get to meet the recipient? Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think that donation remains anonymous. Uh, we certainly like don't cannot tell like who actually who was the person who actually disease like was to donated the kidney or their kidney actually got transplanted. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a question we frequently get uh, like asked by our patients. Uh, all we can just tell them a little bit about the patient, but we can never tell them in detail about like. Um, like what's their name or where they're from and all those things that they want to they want to ask and yes uh you can certainly we can certainly like help them connect them in a way like to to pass their gratitude towards the donors mm -hmm. but never like it's just because we have to maintain their private and confidentiality uh, because of the risk people who actually passed away but they were donors so we certainly have to respect that yes okay Definitely. So, and if a uh, patient, pa someone passes away, they donate their organs, can they still have an open casket funeral or is, is that going to affect their funeral proceedings at all? No, there's no, there's no uh, restriction to that. Absolutely not. Okay, wonderful. So, yeah. so everything can go as normal as expected. And when someone... Yeah passes away in our last two minutes here. Um, who decides if the organs are usable when someone passes away and, and they said, yep, I want to be an organ donor, take everything. Who says, yes, we can take it or no, I, I'm sorry, it's not possible. Um, I think at the time of like, uh, on those emotional times, those are very emotional times for the families, for the people who are donors, uh, they're losing their loved ones. So we certainly have to like uh, respect their wishes first. And then after that, we have a criteria of like the organ procurement that we follow. Um, it's like there are two types of like uh, people that organ that we can procure with the brain dead or the disease uh, circulatory death. The brain dead is just like you have a functioning like organs and perfusion, and those are the good kidneys or organs that you can use. Uh, circulatory collapse, in which you don't have enough uh, like perfusion of, the, and you can have like organs which are not so suitable uh, to uh, donate or to use. We certainly don't use those. So I think it's decided there and then in the OR uh, when the patient is actually uh, being evaluated for the organ procurement. All right, so a very good decision to have ahead of time since there's mm -hmm. time is of the essence when uh, we're deciding if someone needs to donate or not. So. Yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah. All right, and, it, and donation should not affect, cost, should not cost the donor's family anything? There's no cost associated with donating? Absolutely not. It's all covered uh, by the insurance and it's all come, come, uh, built uh, under the insurance. So we certainly like, don't want to like, put any more uh, cost burden to our donors who are actually doing, actually giving a gift of life to the other, to their loved ones or like people who they don't even know. So certainly for sure, yes. Excellent. Well, it sounds like this is a very easy um, thing for people to do and it can be yeah. life-changing for the uh, 
recipients and is an amazing gift of, literally gift of life that can be given while you're still alive and uh, even potentially after you pass away. So I thank you so much, both of you, for uh, helping me and, and talking about all of these uh, important topics today. So we'll be right yeah. back after this. Thank you for having us. In healthcare, misinformation can be as deadly as the most serious disease and spread just as quickly. For 21 seasons, the Prairie Doc organization has provided health information based on honest science in a respectful and compassionate manner. Medical professionals from your own communities volunteer each week to answer your questions. There is no cost to call in or to watch our shows. Follow the Prairie Doc on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to access the entire Prairie Doc library today. The first successful organ transplant was a kidney transplant in 1954. The donor was the identical twin of the recipient, and the new kidney worked for 11 months. This was long before any anti-rejection medications were available. Cyclosporine, the first anti-rejection medication, was approved for use in 1983. The use of anti-rejection medications has significantly increased how long transplanted organs will function. A transplanted kidney from a living donor will last on average 12 to 20 years. A kidney from a deceased donor lasts 8 to 12 years on average. Amazingly, the longest recorded kidney transplant lasted 60 years. Most people who have had kidney transplants for end-stage kidney disease are first treated with kidney dialysis. Since dialysis is an option treatment for end-stage kidney disease, people may wonder why kidney transplants are needed at all. Dialysis is not ideal as it can only do about 10 to 15 percent of the work that a healthy kidney does. Dialysis is also very costly and time-consuming for the patient. The average life expectancy of a patient on dialysis is five to 10 years. Thus, dialysis is commonly used as a bridge to kidney transplants and not a replacement for a transplant. Kidney and liver transplants are unique because they can be done with living donors. For the kidney donor, once the kidney is removed, the remaining one will increase in size to adjust for the lost kidney. The portion of the liver that is donated can regrow rapidly and the donor's liver will be back to normal size and function in a few months after donation. Donation of a kidney or part of a liver does not shorten the donor's life expectancy. Per the National Organ Transplant Act, neither the living nor deceased donors are compensated for organ donations. This is truly a gift of life that is given to the recipient. However, organ recipients may pay for their living donors' travel, lodging, and lost wages in connection with the donation. The donor surgery is often billed to the recipient's health insurance. The National Living Donor Assistance Center also helps eligible donors financially when they cannot have their expenses covered by the donor, the donor's insurance company, or state programs. Since 1954, over one million organ transplants have taken place in the United States. The Organ Procurement and Transplant Network reports over 42,800 organ transplants were done in 2022. 
Last year, 6,466 people became living organ donors. Thanks to organ donors, transplant recipients can live longer and healthier lives. Consider checking the organ donor box next time you're at the DMV. One day, it may lead to the gift needed for someone else to stay healthy out there. Well, thank you to our guests, Dr. Singal and Dr. Syed, for volunteering their time to help us learn more about transplants. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube, or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper or online, and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thanks for joining us for our final episode of this season, providing health information based on science, built on trust. Make sure to join us for Encore Short shows all summer long. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Based on science, built on trust. Join us in supporting the Prairie Docs as we enter our 21st season. Hello, my name is Dave Heink, and I serve on the volunteer board of the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 charity that secures funding for Prairie Doc programming. This past year, we celebrated 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information from our four Prairie Docs, each of whom volunteers their time to answer important health questions. Thank you to our viewers who continue to help make this programming possible. You are making a difference for public health information in our state. Your donation allows us to continue to deliver on Rick and Joni Holmes' mission, set out over two decades ago. As a friend, supporter, and volunteer for this organization, I believe in its mission, and I know the vital impact it makes in our communities. Please continue to follow us on social media, on South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and YouTube. If you're so inclined, you may make a donation online at prairiedoc.org. Prefer not to donate online? Reach out to us via email and our staff will send you a pledge form. Thanks again for supporting our mission and Prairie Doc programming. Medical information based on science, built on trust. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello Possibility, Hello Healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pier District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, 
Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.